America. We are endowed by our Creator with certain unalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. At Grand Canyon University, we believe in equal opportunity, and the American dream starts with purpose. By honoring your career calling, you impact your family, your friends, and your community. The pursuit to serve others is yours. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu. It's Wednesday, July 27th, 2022. I'm Jackson Bird. Today, cryptographers have identified the first known secure global communication system in the form of 19th century newspaper ads. Plus, a fourth patient has been effectively cured of HIV. And Netflix is retroactively editing Stranger Things. The edits are not as big a deal as they seem, but the fact that that Netflix can implement them so easily raises bigger questions about the future of arts and entertainment. Here's some cool stuff for your ride home. Long before apps like Signal, if an everyday person wanted to send an encrypted message to someone, they had to get creative, especially back in the 19th century. A group of explorers hit on a solution that, at first, sounds counterintuitive. They published their messages as ads in a globally distributed newspaper. But they published them in code, a code so strong that it has only begun to be broken 170 years later. Cryptographers Alonka Dunnan and Klaus Schmeh and journalist A.J. Jacobs presented their findings earlier this month at the HOPE 2022 conference here in Queens. HOPE is the Hackers of Planet Earth conference, which amazingly, in its long-anticipated pandemic-delayed return, was this year titled A New Hope. Anyways, the focus of these cryptographers' presentation was a series of 50 mysterious ads that were printed in the British newspaper The Times between 1850 and 1855. Attempts to decrypt the ads have occurred over the years. The Times itself republished one of the messages in 1980, asking readers to give decryption a shot. And 12 years later, cryptographer John Robson identified a handful of patterns evident in the messages, which he detailed in his journal Cryptologia. Robson's findings were one of the leads that Dunn Jacobs and Schme used to eventually crack the code. The other resource they used was a codebook called the Marriott Signal Code, which was published in 1817, a few decades prior to the appearance of these ad messages in the Times. Quoting Vice, This codebook uses four-digit groups or numbered groups as a system for sailors to send each other encrypted messages using flags, which represent different numbers. Dunnan and her colleagues then replaced the letters in the encrypted ads with digits, first 0 to 9, which didn't work, and then 9 to 0. End quote. That did indeed turn out to be the code system being used, but there's another contextual detail here. Dunnan made the connection between the ads appearing solely from 1850 to 1855 and the Arctic expedition of English naval officer Richard Collinson, which lasted exactly from 1850 to 1855. Could it be that the contents of these messages related to that expedition? Well, first, some background on the expedition. 
Quoting again from Vice, In 1845, explorer Lord John Franklin set out from England on an expedition with two warships called Terror and Erebus, with the goal of finding the Northwest Passage, a sea route that connects the Atlantic and Pacific Oceans through the Arctic Ocean, a faster way to get from England to India and the rest of Asia. Three years later, Franklin and his 129 men vanished and were never heard from again. In 1850, the English naval officer Richard Collinson was sent to the Canadian Arctic in hopes of finding any traces of the Franklin expedition, or at least figuring out what happened to the explorer and his ships. End quote. Collinson's expedition ultimately failed, both at finding Franklin and his crew, and ultimately being beaten to the punch in all of his Northwest Passage-related discoveries. But while the expedition was ongoing, Collinson and his crew inadvertently made history with the first secure global communication system that we know of. After using a variation of the Marriott signal code to begin decoding the messages, Dunnan and her crew discovered that the messages were updates sent to and from the expedition crew and their families. Rather than important covert messages about the expedition sent to the military or their funders, it was simply a way to keep in touch with loved ones. But why go through all the trouble? Well, basically, communication was tough back in the 1850s, and the nature of an exploratory mission meant they wouldn't always know where they would be or what technology they would have access to, but they did know that the Times was then distributed to just about every major city in the world. So no matter where they went, the explorers would be able to pick up a copy of the newspaper and scan it to see if there were any coded updates from their family. The bulk of the messages contained updates about trips family members were taking, new children being born, and general reassurances that certain relatives were doing well. It's all just kinda nice. But if you want a story that's a bit steamier, while they were digging through newspaper archives, the team also discovered other messages published in code in 19th century newspapers that, once decrypted, have turned out to be love letters almost more like missed connections, just notes pining for people. Vice referred to them as sexts, which I guess through the lens of 19th century English propriety could be the case. And sexting is certainly one reason folks opt for the extra security and privacy of encryption these days too, so I guess some things never change. Yet another person appears to have been cured of HIV, adding further hope that a full cure could one day be accessible to all. Although, like with previous cases, there were a ton of caveats. This particular case would not be broadly replicable, but it could lead to important insight about other potential cures in general. The patient, who is staying anonymous for privacy's sake, has been HIV positive since the 1980s and is now 66 years old. A few years ago, he developed leukemia and underwent a bone marrow transplant as part of his treatment. Quoting the BBC, By coincidence, the donor was resistant to HIV. The virus gets into our body's white blood cells by using a microscopic doorway, a protein called CCR5. However, some people, including this donor, have CCR5 mutations that bolt the door shut and keep out HIV. 
end quote. Following the transplant, all of the patient's vitals were closely monitored, and it was soon discovered that the HIV levels in his body had become undetectable. It has now been 17 months that he's been in remission, and he was able to stop taking the antiretroviral therapy that he'd been on for over three decades, the longest of any previous patient who has gone into HIV remission. He is the fourth and oldest yet person to be effectively cured of HIV. But bone marrow transplants would not be considered a suitable option for all people living with HIV. As Stephen Deeks, an HIV expert at the University of California, San Francisco, who was not involved in the research, said, quote, The first thing you do in a bone marrow transplant is you destroy your own immune system temporarily. You would never do this if you didn't have cancer. End quote. Deeks continued, quoting Medical Express, he said that cases such as this patient offered a potential roadmap towards a more broadly available cure, possibly using CRISPR gene editing technology. I think that if you can get rid of HIV and get rid of CCR5, the door by which HIV gets in, then you can cure someone, Deeks said. It's theoretically possible, we're not there yet, to give someone a shot in the arm that will deliver an enzyme that will go into the cells and knock out CCR5 and knock out the virus. But that's science fiction for now, he says, end quote. Fortunately, in this case, so much that feels like science fiction keeps getting closer and closer to reality every day. So there are a lot of headlines going around today about Stranger Things creators the Duffer Brothers retroactively editing some episodes of the hit show on Netflix. Now some of the headlines are straight up false and others are basically clickbait for the fairly underwhelming edits that did really happen. So I thought I would clear up what is actually going on, but also talk more broadly about the value of retroactively editing film or TV, or as the Duffer Brothers call it, George Lucasine. As Jack King pointed out in the UK GQ, bug fixes and software updates have become the norm to us these days, in gaming, in apps, and while King makes a decent argument that it allows game studios to be kind of negligent because the product no longer has to be perfect on day one, I would say that the concept has been mostly ingrained in us by now. You know, even among early adopters, a lot of us don't expect something to be at its best when it first launches. And if it's something like an app or a game simply fixing bugs or maybe adding features over time, there's usually no issue. But anytime one of them changes something that users have no ability to revert back to, be that a feature, an interface, or the core of the product in some way, that is when you get a bit of outcry. And the ability to update a movie or TV show after the fact in this way is mostly new territory. The big exception, of course, being George Lucas, who infamously took advantage of the 1997 20th anniversary remasters to introduce major changes to scenes and characters. Now, Lucas notwithstanding, remasters and minor cuts or additions were about all you saw in movies. You know, unlike second and third editions of books, when new editions of movies were released, it usually just meant higher resolution and maybe some bonus features. Netflix, with their in-house properties making it easy to vertically control every element of a film or TV property and quickly make an edit live on everyone's devices, has broken the mold, ushering in a potentially whole new era of post-premiere editing. 
The Stranger Things changes are making headlines today, but Netflix has made other minor edits over the years. When Elliot Page publicly came out as trans at the end of 2020, Netflix immediately updated his name in the credits of every episode of The Umbrella Academy, which was an especially good thing to do because as anyone else who's been watching the show recently can tell you, his name is the very first text that pops up on the screen in huge letters at the end of every episode. And technically, Netflix already edited season four of Stranger Things before this latest brouhaha. They failed to put any sort of content warning at the start of the first episode of the latest season, which opens with graphic scenes of children dying, and which premiered mere days after the shooting at Uvalde Elementary School. Within about 12 hours, they had added a warning at the start of the episode, but not until after several fans and journalists had spoken up about it, so we know that it wasn't there to start. And in a sit-down interview with Variety last month, the Duffer Brothers admitted that they made other changes to season four shortly after it premiered, but just, quote, some of the visual effects. It's not, like, story, but you're essentially patching in shots, end quote. They also said that it was the first time Netflix allowed anyone to patch something on opening weekend, implying that such patches do happen frequently at other times. The big change the Duffer Brothers say they're making, however, is a minor plot hole that has been pointed out by fans. In season two, it's established that the character Will Byers' birthday is on March 22nd. But in season four, an episode is set on that day, and not a single character, even his mother, acknowledges that it's his birthday. Now, the out-of-universe explanation is that the Duffer Brothers and the writers and everyone else on the show simply forgot that they had established Will's birthday previously. So, to make it, in their words, a bit less sad that no one said happy birthday to Will, they're going to go back and change his birthday to May 22nd. March to May being an easy fix with ADR since the date is only established by Winona Ryder speaking it in Season 2. Now, those are the actual only changes that they've made, but fans online have been spreading rumors of a much more substantial change. Some have claimed that an entire scene from season one had been cut out, one in which high schooler Jonathan Byers takes some peeping Tom photographs of his classmate Nancy. Now, Jonathan has gone on to become a beloved character over the seasons, but that first introduction to him still rightfully leaves a sour taste in some fans' mouths. So the idea that Netflix was trying to remove a moment of wrongdoing from the character has faced a bit of critique. But the whole thing is just a rumor. That scene is still there, and the official Stranger Things account on Twitter reassured viewers that, quote, no scenes from previous seasons have ever been cut or re-edited, and they never will be, end quote. That's some precise language, considering edits are being made, just not to whole entire scenes. And that gets me back to the larger idea of directors changing film and TV shows after they've premiered. I've always been a little of two minds about this. Like, I'm pretty annoyed by the addition of that weird CGI Jabba the Hutt in A New Hope. I loved the puppet version in the later films, and I didn't get why that scene even needed to be added. But at the same time, I kind of like the idea that an artist could keep 
tinkering away with a piece of art even after it's been out there for public consumption. I mean, I certainly took full advantage of the paperback publication of my book to make substantial edits, and I've edited my YouTube videos a little here and there to the extent that the platform allows. Because, you know, on the one hand, there is something nice about being done with a project and not having to think about it again, letting it live as a reflection not just of your artistic vision but of who you were as a person at the time. But on the other hand, why not give something an update as you and the world grow and change? Whoever said art had to be permanent? Now, we could kind of get into the art belonging to the artist or the audience debate here. Is it breaking some kind of trust or unspoken contract with the audience for an artist to start changing something that fans have fallen in love with? And especially with film, we can also recognize that a director, even when they are also the writer and creator, is not the only artist involved in the final product. In a movie like Star Wars, there were thousands of people who had a hand in making that movie, and several folks behind Lucas who signed off on it with the knowledge of what the fine cut of the movie was in 1977. Would they have still signed off on the version that Lucas changed it to in the 90s? And what about the people whose work was changed or removed by his changed vision? Like, I don't know, maybe the designer and puppeteers of the original Jabba. And I mean, that's just the nature of industries like film and TV. Actors are especially aware of this. You could go in for several days of shooting, not to mention weeks or months of preparation, and end up being completely cut from the final cut of the movie. But hey, you still got paid. And no, the Duffer brothers didn't edit out the scene of Jonathan taking photos of Nancy. But if they did, that would be on a level of editing that totally changes the story. It's like when Lucas changed A New Hope to have Greedo shoot first. That sanitizes Han Solo's character and strips him of the complexity of being this hot-headed smuggler who grows and changes over time to step into the hero role. And similarly with Jonathan, what he did in that episode sucked. He took non-consensual photos of a classmate in her underwear. Not okay. But removing that detail, when it happened in the story and is referenced again for multiple episodes afterwards, removes a layer of complexity to his character. And it's almost like trying to let him get away with it scot-free. Which the show basically does anyways, but, you know, at least the scene is still there for the fans that remember it to remember it. And I mean, at the end of the day, I don't think I care that much about any of this, but especially as streaming platforms become creators as much as distributors, it really makes you wonder about the integrity of any property you're watching. Will a movie that you watch in June be the same one that your friend watches in October? And since we barely own anything ourselves these days, can we even complain about that? The question of who owns art continues to get more and more complicated. That was a bit of a longer one today, so that is going to be it from me for today. This show was produced by Ride Home Media. I'm Jackson Bird, and I will talk to you again tomorrow.